Hi there, welcome to Falling Up Radio. Today, we're gonna break the myth of Aladdin's lamp. You know, Aladdin, they said that you only had three wishes. Well, our guest is gonna tell you why that might not really be true. Our guest, James Arthur Ray, has been famous for initially starting with The Secret and actually a little bit before that too. And he has grown to this incredible person over the years. Leadership, he, he loves to talk about leadership. He's number one New York Times bestseller, Harmonic Wealth. He's been on CNN, Piers Morgan. He's been on Oprah a number of times talking about a whole range of different things. He's worked with well over a million people, a million people in over 145 countries around the world. Toastmasters gave him an award for outstanding communication leadership, and it goes on and on and on. We don't have enough time today to talk about what this man has accomplished in his life. And at the end, we're going to talk to you a little bit about his upcoming book being released in February of, of next year, 2020, The Business of Redemption. So, James, welcome to our show. I'm excited you're here today. I'm honored to be here, Michael. Um, you know, I, I appreciate you having me on. We've known each other for a while, so it's a real privilege to do your show. Yeah. You, you, you know, James, I, I mentioned the thing about Aladdin's lamp because I know that's in, in, in the secret. And I love the way that you tell that story. Can you tell the listeners what that's about and break that myth? Yeah, well, you know, what the first thing that we need to understand is that I believe we've lost our mythology in modern world, which is unfortunate. And what we've done with, with our mythology is we've turned it into a literal translation about a literal person in a literal time in history. And, and that's really not what mythology is, is for or about. Mythology is the history of the human soul or the journey of the human soul. And so all these great stories about, you know, and, and I'm a big fan of Joseph Campbell, if you're familiar, and, and all these, these great stories about the hero's journey and, and Hercules and, and um, Prometheus. And I, I mean, I could go on and on. The, the warriors and, and the kings and King Arthur, you know, all those are metaphors for talking about how life works, including Aladdin's lamp. Now, you know, we've, over the years, somewhere along the way, you know, these, this young guy named Aladdin was, and I'll, I'll abbreviate here, was tripping down the road one day, and he actually stumbled over a lamp. He picked it up, and it was a bit dusty. He dusted it off, and out pops his genie. Well, the genie always says, your wish is my command. And so what we've been told and the way that's morphed over the years is that you have three wishes. If you go back to the origins, first of all, there's no limitation to the wishes. And if you understand what these things represent, it's not literally a human being and a lamp and a genie. Very simply and quickly, what this, this myth represents is Aladdin is your conscious mind, the individual who, who thinks and reasons and makes choices. The lamp 
is your unconscious mind, which holds the storehouse of everything. And, and even, you know, modern psychology tells us 95% of what we do every single day, Michael, is driven by your unconscious. 95%, which is pretty, pretty amazing as you think about it. So the lamp represents your unconscious. The genie represents the contents of the lamp, which is also, it's both a blessing and a curse, but on the blessing side, it could be called your higher conscious mind or something greater than you in this universe, which every great tradition has told us in a myriad of different ways and metaphors that there's something bigger, bolder, wiser, all-knowing, all-powerful beyond our physical selves. And so as, as you understand what these things represent, then the conscious mind has a relationship with the unconscious, the lamp. And as that relationship unfolds, we have the ability to access a higher potential uh, if we do it appropriately. And then we can begin to take conscious command of our lives, our businesses, and every, our relationships, everything around us. So, so let, let me ask you a question. I know this question might be a huge rabbit hole to go down, but oftentimes when we're making our wishes, our unlimited wishes, and, you know, I'm just throwing this number out. I don't know if this is right, but let's say the average person out of 10 wishes, seven of them may be an unconscious wish that may not be something productive for their lives. And maybe three of them are maybe a, more of a conscious wish. Why do we do that as human beings and go to that other side? Well, this is a rabbit hole. And it's a very important rabbit hole. It, it's, a, it's a much needed and discussed and explored rabbit hole. The, you know, let me, let me just say this. The people that I coach are really good at telling me what they want. And yet the Buddha was asked once, why don't you teach your students to pray? And he, his response was, my students are not awake enough to know what to pray for. Now, how many times, yeah, right? How many yeah. times have you, like me, prayed for something or wished for something or visualized something or thought you wanted something, and then you get it, and you're like, oh, my God, this is not what I wanted at all. I mean, I, I made a conscious choice to be a, a thought leader all the way back in the – early 2000s. Well, little did I know what that would entail. And had I known the path it would take me on, which was a rise and a even bigger fall and a, a trip through prison and losing everything. And, and you know, it's, it's part of the path. And someone said to me once, do you think that you have to go through those things to to be able to make an impact in the world and i said the very same thing that i said to my my zen master said to me i've studied with a zen master for a number of years and he said to me at one point when i was in tremendous pain he said james 
how can you expect to help a hurting world if you haven't experienced the same pain? And so, you know, oh, isn't it grand to be on Oprah and to be a thought leader, to be have pe- over a million people coming from 145 different countries around the world to ask you some advice on their life and business? Well, yeah, it, it's, it's grand on one hand, but it's, it's both a blessing and a curse because that means if you're going to really help people on a deep level, you're going to have to be able to have compassion for what they're experiencing. And, and, and here's, you know, I know I'm, I'm getting, I'm, I'm starting on a riff here and I'll reel it back, which I'm notorious for riffing, but, but here's, here's the thing about the word compassion that we tend to forget. First of all, the word passion in the Latin translates as suffering. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, we hear in personal performance, spiritual arenas, follow your passion, follow your passion, do something you're passionate about. Well, what we're really being told is follow your suffering, do something you're going to suffer for. Okay. Now, if you look at the word compassion, and I, as a student of language, the prefix come is very, very, is similar to the word common, same prefix. So compassion is literally common suffering. Now you cannot you cannot have compassion unless you've had the same experience. You can have sympathy, which by the way is also arrogance because sympathy is feeling sorry for someone else, which think about the meta message of sympathy. Oh, I'm, I'm so much bigger, better than you. I feel sorry for you. I have sympathy for you. I level up from sympathy is empathy. Empathy is attempting to feel what someone else feels, but compassion is knowing what they feel because you've had a common suffering. And so, again, the old adage, be careful what you wish for, I do believe we always get what we ask for at some level, and yet it's most probably not going to come in the package that we think it's going to come in (laughs) or in the the way we think it's going to come. It rarely does. Exactly. My experience is that way. Let's spin the, the dial back a, a, a little bit because I'm, I'm a little bit intrigued about um, some of your time growing up. And I know when you were, you were younger, you were kind of maybe geeky a little bit, struggling a little bit. You got into your 20s. You started weightlifting. Uh, your, your father what was a pastor when you, when you were growing up, a, a minister. And, you know, I, I always like to go back and look at those origin stories, so to speak, because I find that there's so many gems in them. And for like yourself, knowing you as as I know you, I suspect that those times, like maybe in your 20s and such, and your motorcycle accident, all of this helped maybe trigger you forward to doing what you're doing today. Is that an accurate assessment? It's very accurate. And, And it's psychologically sound as well, because what psychology tells us is that we are literally programmed, we are conditioned during our formative years, which is the primary period is between birth and 13. And, you know, wherever you were between birth and 13 and whatever experiences you were having between birth and 13, according to the behavioral scientist, Dr. Morris Massey and his massive research on human behavior, 
that's where your core level values, beliefs, assumptions lock in. And according to his research as well, they very rarely change after 13 years of age unless we experience what he called a significant emotional event. Mm-hmm. And, and so what that means, Michael, as you think about it now, and as your listeners think about this, is that we're interacting every single day with people who are in their uh, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and maybe beyond, and yet they're literally 13 years old inside. Now, that's, that's pretty profound and pretty scary sometimes as you think about it. And so, yes, I, my formative years, I was very insecure. I was bullied as a kid. I never fit in. I was the proverbial nerd, and I, I still am a nerd. Um, you know, I mean, I, I would much rather curl up with a, a great book than go to a party. I'm, I'm, I'm an introvert by nature, and, and I'm a homebody. And when people see me on stage, they instantly think I'm an extra, extrovert because I get into the flow state and I come alive. But that's something happening through me. It's not my, my typical MO. I'm really, uh, you know, quite reserved. I, I would much rather have a conversation one-on-one with someone than to and to be the life of the party. I'll never be the life of the party. And you've been in social settings with me. I, you know, I, I'm not the life of the party. Uh, I will speak up when I'm asked to speak up. And, I, and when I have something to contribute, I will. And a lot of that is more learned behavior as I've, as I've grown through the years. But yeah, those formative years, I never felt good enough. My dad was just the opposite. He was an extrovert. He was very dynamic. You know, he was an incredible speaker and very successful in, in the church of God, which is similar to uh, Southern Baptist, if you will, very fundamental upbringing. When I was growing up, everything that was fun was a sin and would send you straight to hell. And, and so, and, and mom was very strict, you know, very stereotypical German staunch, you know, by the book woman and, so anyway, I didn't fit in, and, and so that drove me, and I was skinny and scrawny. I mean, when I graduated from, from high school, I was six foot one and weighed 150 pounds. Wow. And yeah, and so anyway, I never felt like I, I was good enough. I was not athletic. I went out for sports, attempting to boost my self-esteem in school, and I, I was terrible. I was terrible in sports. You know, I, I rode the bench the entire time. And it's not like in today's world where you get participation trophies just for showing up so that our psyches don't get damaged. Don't get me started on that one. Um, you know, if you, if you sucked, you sucked uh, when I was growing up. And, and I'm, I'm grateful for that because if I'd have gotten a participation trophy and if I – was some of the newer generations who grew up not learning how to accept tough feedback, I may have not made it through, mm-hmm. through the situations I've been through. So I'll stop there. Um, but that, that was my formative years. I, I, well, I will say, because you mentioned I got into competitive bodybuilding in my early twenties and became obsessed with that because I felt like as if my external body could, 
started to grow. I felt a little bit more confident about myself. And then life came along and said, hey, let's take that away. And so my, li my life has been a series of rise and falls. And I believe there's a reason for that because over time, as I've risen physically and fallen physically through the motorcycle accident, I've began to recognize, hey, all this time and energy and effort putting into the physical body can be gone in a nanosecond. Maybe that's not where I should be putting my time, energy, and effort. And then I got into business and I, I rose up through AT&T and I ended up at AT&T School of Business as a C-suite consultant working with CEOs and executives on leadership, performance, team, team communication, and culture shifts, culture change initiatives. And I rose up through business and grow, you know, grew my own business as I left AT&T School of Business and started off on my own. And then, as you know, that crashed and burned too. And I, I thought, okay, I had to step back and do another self-analysis and say, what's really important in life? And here's, here's the summation of that, if I may put it in a nutshell. The only thing that has true value is that which cannot be taken away or lost. And at the end of the day, if it can be lost or taken away, it's not, there really is no true value. Now, I'm not saying that we should totally disregard that. Far from it. Please don't misunderstand that. But I'm saying let's put the focus on the things that, that cannot be touched or taken. And those things are inside, not outside. Are our spiritual essence and I, I think one, one place I, I noted that you had mentioned that you felt love was the number one emotion. And like I, those type of things, what I'm hearing from you are those things that can't be taken away. They might even be able to take our body, but our spirit is still, you know, bigger than our body. Yeah. You know, it just came up for me. I'm, I'm a big fan of, of great movies, movies that make you think. But that, that line in Braveheart, if you remember, you, you may take my body, but you'll never take my freedom. Yeah. And, and that cannot be touched. Yeah. You know? And so anyway, yeah, I, to the concept of love, this is something that I, I would not really have talked about pre-2009 I thought I knew what love was but you know you and I were in a mastermind a couple months back where I said for the very first time right now I I believe that I really know what love is and it's not airy-fairy romance all the time it can be like that sometimes but that's not love that's you know that's Hollywood fantasy Real love is sacrifice. Real love is commitment. Real love is discipline. Real love is, is, is the, the number one driving force, not just emotion, but it's the number one driving force in this universe. And, and as you know, I'm, I'm newly married, and, and, and my new wife, Bersaba, has taught me more about real love than I've ever known in my entire life. And, and, and here's the thing. It, she's taught me that not through tripping through the tulips and, and drinking fine wine and smelling the sweet perfume. There's been some of that, but she's taught me that through our own toughest times. I mean, we've built our relationship through our toughest times, both of us, 
together, toughest times in life, and we're still here. And, and so that, that is invaluable, yeah. I believe. Yeah, and, and I would add to, to what you're saying that when, when, whenever I've seen the two of you interact, I look at you as in this relationship as partners, two people standing side by side. And I don't always see that when, when I see relationships. Sometimes somebody's really dominant, you know, over the other. But I've really seen that the two of you in your interactions as that let's walk together side by side rather than, you know, I'm going to be the leader or this or that. that that's so true. And, and it's funny because I've, I've been really blessed, Michael. I've had, I've had about six major mentors in my life. I've had, I've had business mentors from AT&T. I owe a tremendous debt to AT&T for my business acumen. Uh, I've had, I've had spiritual mentors, psychological mentors, mystical mentors, shamanic mentors. I mean, I, I've had some really great coaches and mentors and I, I'm a firm believer that we all need a coach or a mentor. All of us, even, even the greatest coach, needs a coach. And I told you, I've studied with a Zen master for years and I, I'm, I'm pretty good at coaching and all humility. And yet I still work with a Zen master who doesn't pull any punches. If you know anything about Zen, it's not airy fairy. You know, I mean, if, if you study Zen in Japan, they beat you with a cane pole. You can't yeah. do that in America. You get in trouble, you yeah. know, but, but it's, it's tough. Yeah. And, and so, so, you know, she's, she's been a great mentor for me as well. And here's, here was my original thought. One of my, I was initiated into the Huna tradition of the South Pacific years ago. And it's, some believe it's one of the original spiritual traditions. It's very mystical. And my, my kahuna at the time, which means spiritual master, it doesn't mean good surfer, contrary to popular belief. Um, <laughs> wait, wait a minute. I learned how to surf 10 years old in Waikiki Beach, the old longboards. You know? Yeah, yeah. And you, and you probably watched uh, Point Break and and, yeah. and saw Patrick Swayze called a kahuna. And then, no, that, that's that's not the way it goes. But <laughs> but nonetheless, my my teacher said to me at one point, and, and, I, and I'm honored by what you said, because he said to me, you need you need a partner. You need to work with a feminine energy and both of you work together. And my, and this was back probably 2004 ish, somewhere there about. And I'm like, no, I don't want a partner. And, and I didn't say this, but I thought I'm not going to share the, the spotlight with anybody. You know, I don't need it. And I was the biggest advocate of this whole concept of, quote, soulmate. And, I, and who knows, you know, um, my whole advocacy was, hey, you don't find someone else to complete you. You complete yourself. And until you can complete yourself, you're never going to find a complete relationship. I still believe that to this day. But a lot of that was coming from anger and previous pain of relationships and so now fast forward, you know, if you follow us on social media, we do videos together and, and she's taught me every bit as much as, as I've helped her because we've both been going through a lot of very accelerated growth curve in the last six years since 2013. 
Yeah, and I, I think that's a, a common thing right now too. I wanted to ask you about something else and then I wanna dive a little bit into your book. Um, another myth that I've heard you talk about is um, about doing the same thing over and over and over again. You know, the, the saying is, you know, continue to do the same thing over and over again is insanity. Well, there's some myth around that too that that might not really be true. And I know that you use the woodpecker analogy. Can you talk a little bit about that as well? Yeah, and I, I, I just got to tell you, I really appreciate it. It's obvious to me you've done your homework and that 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 means a lot to me because I do a lot of interviews and, and so many people are so clueless. <laughs> I mean, they just get on and wing it. And so many props hats off to you for that. Nice. You know, the woodpecker pecks, I don't know how many thousands of times on the same place. And just, if you've heard them, they just, they're resilient and, and they're, they just won't give up. And what I, what I firmly know to be true not belief because knowing is beyond belief is that that it's impossible the forces of this universe must give way to he or she who refuses to give up and and unfortunately you know i talked about this a little bit you you alluded to the secret the movie but if you remember the metaphor of of how many times i work with individuals either in their business or in their personal lives or as a coach. And, and there are things that are happening on the surface that we can't see. And that's why every great tradition has told us the same thing in different fashions. You know, the Christ told us to judge not by appearances because appearances are nothing more than the residual outcome of your past thoughts, feelings, and actions. What most of us do is we look at our current appearances in our business or in our life or in our relationship, and we say, this is who I am. Well, no, that's not who you are, and it says absolutely nothing about who you have the possibility to become because we live this in this residual according to the law of gender, which says everything has an incubation period or a gestation period. We live in this residual outcome of our past thoughts, feelings, and actions. And so when we're looking at our current affairs, we're looking at the past. You're not, that's not who you are. That's who you were. And so to, yes, there is some wisdom sometimes in stepping back and this and saying, Hey, I need to shift directions. Maybe I need to shift entirely. And that's where self-awareness comes in. I, I believe the number one, quality in today's world for leaders and entrepreneurs or, or for people who just want to be successful in their life is self-awareness. And unfortunately, very, very few people have a high amount of self-awareness. What's happening, Michael, in today's market is that we have been conditioned by a machine, a massive machine to forget what's important and to hold in high regard what this machine called socialized mind has told us we should value, has told us what's important. And so we're chasing things we think we want, but we don't even know who we are. Yeah. So how can you tell me what you want when you can't even tell me who you are? The fact is you can't. And so 
you know, there's so many tangents off of this topic, but, but I, I continually tell people you have to think for yourself. Well, I do think for myself. Well, don't be, don't be so quick because why do you want a Mercedes over a Volkswagen? You know, why, why do you think a Bentley is a great car? You know, if I gave the choice between a Bentley or a 750 BMW, probably 99% of the, and, and it was free, probably 99% of the people would take the Bentley. Well, do you know, they're, they're almost the absolute same car. Yeah. They're the same chassis, almost same engine. The accoutrements are a little different. But why is it that you can get, you know, I, I haven't priced cars. I don't care that much about them anymore. I used to, but I've learned what's, for me, more important. But I, I think a 750, you know, is a little, maybe 150,000, maybe a little bit more. I don't know. But a Bentley is like 300,000 starting price. So yeah. twice the price, same car. Why? Because we've been conditioned that this is more prestigious than this, even though they're almost the same. And that's just one simple example. You could go come up with another after another after another. And what I believe has to happen is the self-awareness has to be developed. And we as leaders, Michael, have to start changing the conversation. And well, do, do you think that that's, I mean, I, I heard you say a little while ago, uh, a few minutes ago, that you felt like, you and Bear were like, your growth was accelerating. And do you think part of that accelerated growth is letting go of that machine, so to speak, and going within and, and finding that discovery about what's really being revealed? Yes, absolutely. And um, let me tell you something that's not gonna be real popular, but it's true nonetheless, is fear, I'm sorry, pain is the mother of all growth. Oh, yeah. Now, now, well, none of us want to hear that, including me. And none of us like it, including me. You don't have to like it. It's still true. Most of us don't make tremendous shifts in our life until we experience enough pain. We will take a, a path that is not even good for us for as long as we can until we finally get to a pain point that says enough already. And, and that's why, you know, it, the law of correspondence says if you want to know how one thing works, look at how everything works because we live in this holographic universe. Science now tells us where everything affects everything and, and everything is repeating patterns and fractal geometry tells us everything is a repeating fractal and again and again and again and again. And so if you look at this thing and say, okay, how do I grow a business? Well, let me go look at how I grow a body. And if I want to grow a body, then I'm going to have to sweat. I'm going to have to push against weights that are heavier and heavier all the time. I'm going to be out of breath. I'm going to want to quit. I'm going to sometimes scream, I can't take it anymore. And it's going to burn. And so, okay, well, if everything is repeating patterns, then guess what it's going to take to grow an entrepreneurial business or a leader. It's going to take the same kinds of things. And, and we don't like that, particularly in this quick fix, fast fame, give me the magic bullet, you know, the secret sauce mentality. But we know inside those things don't work. And if we don't know that, then we just haven't gone far enough into our own pain yet. Yeah. 
But when we get there, then we go, okay, I got to do something different. And so long answer to your question, this accelerated growth curve and really coming back to a self-awareness and a self-assessment about what is truly valuable, like I said earlier, that which cannot be taken away or lost is, is really the only thing that we're left with at the end of the day. Your, your wealth is not what you have. Your wealth is what you, you're left with when all you have is gone. I like that. Yeah. So right now you're doing a lot of, you, I've heard you mention the leadership a couple of times. You're doing a lot of work specifically around leadership right now. Is that correct? And you, you're doing some workshops and some one-on-one -on -one coaching in that area a little bit more? Yeah, and, I, and I've gotten back into the business consulting arena as well, which is where I built my legs, my chops, if you will, in business as, you know, at AT&T, I was a, a consultant for the C-suite executives, and we go in and we do culture change initiatives, and we do, we do interviews and, and all these kinds of things to find the, the underlying drivers of behavior, and usually the the underlying drivers of behavior are unspoken. They're not the things we hang on the wall. You know, they're the things that, that don't hang on the wall that really drive. And we call that culture in business. The same thing applies to an individual in, a, in the individual arena. We call that your community. And the community is nothing more or the culture is nothing more than the collective operating values, beliefs, assumptions of, of the collective group that you're operating in. So we're doing more of that. And with regard to leadership, you know, Michael, I, I like to go big. I think if you're, if you're going to go, you might as well go big or not bother. In my last book, Harmonic Wealth, my objective was to redefine the word wealth. Did I achieve it? No, not yet. Anyway, will I ever, I uh, probably not. I don't know, but it doesn't mean I'm not going to continue. Um, but if you look at the word wealth and ask someone, 99%, you say, of the people you ask, what's wealth, they'll say money. Yeah. Well, if you go back and trace the etymology of the word wealth, it has nothing to do with money. It translates as well-being. Now, I work with people who make a tremendous amount of money, but they don't have any well-being. So literally, they're not very wealthy. Now, jump over to the idea of leadership. I'm also attempting to redefine leadership. Because I believe now more than ever in our world, we need a new type of leader. Most so-called leaders are nothing more than glorified managers yeah. in today's world. And my approach to leadership is that you, it has to have life and business. How can you lead a, a group of individuals in a business adventure when you can't even lead your life successfully? And so, you know, in my Leadership for the Future um, three-day event and in my legendary leadership, which is a five-day experience, we dive into what I call the five dimensions of leadership and performance. And what I'm going to suggest strongly, and this is a diagnostic that I use individually as well as with an organization, is that unless you're going with all five, you're not firing on all cylinders. When all five of those come together holistically, then things really begin to work in a new direction for you.
And it, it, are those five areas mentioned in any of your books or? Not yet. Not yet. Um, not yet. They're only in my workshops because the business of redemption, which is coming out, as you mentioned, in February of 2020, is, is really about my journey over the last decade since 2009 and what I've experienced. It's, it's kind of like a, a um, oh, what's the word I'm, I'm searching for? Um, it, it's, it's like my, my life story with, with lessons learned and ways to apply those lessons. And so um, I didn't get into those more fundamental applications in the book, but probably the next one will have the five dimensions. But I can tell you real quickly what they are today. I don't know that we have time to get deeply into each of them, but they're philosophy. Well, just, just as long as we have time to talk a little bit more about your book, too. Your upcoming okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, let me, since I've already teased your listener, let me just give you the five and then some other time we can talk more about them. But they're philo philosophy, psychology, physiology, community, which I mentioned a moment ago, and strategy. And so when all five of those are firing in unison and in this holographic way, because I believe that the leader for the future is a holographic a, has a holographic approach and and when they're firing in a holographic or holistic way then you're you're working with your power and you're really looking at the full spectrum of life you know what most people are doing in today's world is they're just looking at strategy and yeah. And, you know, Bloomberg recently did research on leaders and said that 70% of the leaders they surveyed are unfit to lead in, in today's disruptive world. And the problem is, is that most are only looking at strategy. I'm not saying strategy is not important. Of course it is. But that's the effect of greater causes. And, and so you've, we've got to deal with the cause versus the effect. When we deal with the cause, the effect will change. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about the, a little bit more about your upcoming book because I'm really intrigued about that. And I'm, I know that you can pre-order it now. Uh, I'm really looking forward to getting a copy. And is that being published by Morgan James? By it is, yeah. Yeah, big props to Morgan James. You know, my, my book, and, and this is part of the journey too, is that my book was turned down by 25 major publishers and, and that's unheard of for a New York Times bestselling author. You know, my last book hit Harmonic Wealth hit the top of the New York Times in the first five days of its release. And my, my first literary agent thought they'd just snap up this new book in a heartbeat, but they didn't. You know, there's, great, uh, there's a great controversy around the whole situation I went through and and yet, again, going back to my point earlier is that the forces of resistance must give way to he or she who refuses to give up. 25 publishers turned it down, and I just I knew I had to get it out. So big props to Morgan James because, you know, they believe in the project, and they, they were willing to deal with potential controversy because they said this message needs to be told to the world. Yeah. And Dave, David Hancock is a good man. And, you know, I first, when I wrote my book, 
I happened to meet Rick Frischman at an event in um, New York City. I didn't know who he was at all. I had no idea who he was. And it was on a Friday. I'd, I'd never submitted my book to anybody at that point. And by the next Wednesday, we had a book deal. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, liked, I liked the way that David Hancock runs his business and the way that Rick does things. And, you know, big kudos to you to getting that book out because I think it's an important book, what, what, what I know about it. But can you take a few minutes and tell the listeners a little bit more about that journey and what's there and, and what they can expect to learn out of it? Yeah. Well, first of all, let me, let me define redemption because I think that's important. It's an important concept and it's important to understand the literal translation. And you can tell I'm a student of language, but the literal translation of redemption is to gain or regain something by paying the price. And so, you know, I've, I've, coined this term redemptive leaders and if you look at the word redemptive it is to save oneself or others from evil or error and and so what i'm really attempting to do here as i said earlier just like i did with harmonic wealth is to redefine leadership and to talk about how we have to change the conversation in this world and the short story that's all in great detail in the book is that, you know, in 2009, I was living the American dream. I, uh, my harmonic wealth was at the top of the New York times bestseller list. I uh, had multiple, multiple millions of dollars in the bank. I'd been Oprah twice, Larry King twice. You know, I was on the today show about once a month for multiple months running. Uh, everyone wanted a piece of me. Uh, People magazine wrote up, in 2008, the book Harmonic Wealth is the top, one of the top celebrity reads for the year. Uh, Fortune magazine wrote a full feature article on me calling me the new, the new leader of, in, in leadership and performance. And on and on and on, I just moved into my dream house in Beverly Hills that I'd held a vision for for years. On, it was a 7,500 square foot estate on Mulholland Drive in Beverly Hills. And and I had it all. I judged the Miss America in, in 2009 as a, quote, celebrity judge. I had everything. And yet, in a nanosecond, I was involved in an incredible accident. My team and I had an experiential event in Sedona, Arizona, a five-day retreat. And at the end of that event, we had an experiential learning um, event called a sweat lodge, which we had done multiple years before. It was always like a highlight graduation. You know, it was a metaphor for taking all the deep dive psychological work from those formative years we talked about earlier and learning how to integrate them, utilize them, heal them, and set ourselves free, make them work for us versus against us. And so it was a physical metaphor to take all that hard mental and emotional work we'd done all week, put it into our bodies, go into an environment where it was tough and prove to ourselves that we were going to push our own boundaries and therefore go home and do the same thing in our life and business. Well, something went incredibly wrong. And as you well know, three people I love and care about lost their lives that day. And, and Michael, you know, I, I knew these people intimately. It was a very small um, workshop and I was on intentionally because we were doing such deep work 
that I was working up close and personal and they were sharing some of their deepest held fears from their early years in childhood and, and frustrations and anger and, and, and all these kinds of things. And we were working through those. And so we worked hard together. We cried together. We hugged together. And then to lose three of those people was, I lost not only three clients, but three friends. Yeah. And if you've ever lost anyone you, you love and care for, you know how that feels. I mean, I know you have, Michael. Yeah. And, and it, I mean, the pain and the anguish of that would have been sometimes more than I could take. And yet it didn't stop there, you know, because subsequently not only did I lose three friends, but I lost my Inc. 500 company. I lost you know, my dream house, I lost my, my life savings, I lost my reputation, most of my so-called friends and colleagues vanished like vapor in, in the noonday sun, and, and I lost my reputation, I lost my self-confidence, and I eventually lost my liberty and, and went, you know, to prison. And so this whole story is through told throughout the book of redemption. And there's a lot of details around what happened in prison. Prison is not a pretty place. Yeah. And some of the experiences that I have had guys like you and me typically would never ever dream of having because not because we're better, but we just don't run in those circles. And so I got a, a real education of the dark side of life and I'm grateful for it. I don't want to do it again, you know, and it wasn't easy. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. And yet I'm grateful for it in retrospect, because it, again, it gives me that compassion, that common suffering. And, you know, anyone who talks to me about being broke, my heart goes out to you, but I'm telling you what, when I came out of prison in 2013, which was seven years, six years ago, I was 54 years of age. I, I was standing in the barren desert of Arizona. I was in horrible physical condition. I had periodontal disease. I had lost 40 pounds I didn't need to lose. I, I was homeless. I, I lost, I'd lost every, I was homeless, literally. Didn't know where I was going to go. Had nowhere to go. And I was $20 million in debt. And so, you know, broke looks good to me. Yeah. From, it was $20 million over my head, you know, to get to broke. And so I'm not meaning to minimize anyone's pain and difficulty, but I, I know what that means now. I know how that feels. I know what it takes to have to get through those things. And who would have known? There were no physical indicators, Michael, in 2013 as I stood in the desert that I would be living in, you know, it's a modest home, but it's a beautiful home. And, and you can see a little bit of it behind me and, and that I would be here talking with you today and I would be able to have a, my new book coming out and that I would be able to share and coach others. There was no physical indicators whatsoever that I would be married to the most amazing woman in the world. I didn't even know her in 2013. And, and so, you know, now my message is you, you've got so much more inside of you than you can ever imagine. And is, is that really how the, the book, what, what I want to call the hope of your book, like how it finishes is giving people that hope that no matter where you've been, 
Yeah, Raider is there. I mean, am, am, am I projecting a little bit there? Or? No, you're you're right on point, and that's that's my, you know, I don't know if you've seen the documentary CNN did on on my life. It's called Enlighten Us, mm -hmm. and my primary reason for doing that was to give hope, you know, for people to be able to potentially watch that. And I wanted to be totally transparent. I wanted to let people see behind the curtain, which very few people will ever let you do. You know, they, they want to keep up this front and this facade. But I wanted people to see a human being who was in anguish and to, to hopefully say, hey, if he got through that, maybe I can get through this. And the same is true in redemption, because I believe we all need redemption. I believe at some level that we need to redeem our honor. We need to redeem for ourselves what's truly valuable and where we've sold out based upon machine mind or socialized mind. We as a country, and I know you probably have, have listeners from all over the world, but we as a, let's talk about America first. We need, to re, we need redemption. We need to pay the price for the prize because, you know, we have a leadership that says make America great again. Well, how about making the world great? Because we live in a world economy. And guess what? Who, who's willing to pay the price? Because all I see is that everybody wants someone else to pay the price. Well, well, we'll take it from the rich or it's the Democrats or it's the Republicans or, or it's this or that, you know. And, and so then blow that out to, to the whole world. We need redemption. We need a reset. And we need to change the conversation, which I've mentioned several times now. And, and that's a big, big job. It's a huge job. And I, I know we, we only have a few minutes left, and I'd love to continue on that and take another hour. And um, I really appreciate your, your time today because I know you got to get up out of your chair and, and get moving here in a few minutes. But at, as we wrap up, do you have maybe three brief ideas or thoughts that maybe the listener could use today about anything you choose? Yeah. Um, first of all, uh, let me come back to something I've already said. Self-awareness is job number one. Okay. Self-awareness is, is, I mean, there's so many things embodied in that, but Part of that that's really critical in today's world is emotional intelligence. That's part of self-awareness. And when you look at that some 20,000 jobs are being lost per month, according to the labor board, by AIs, I mean, we live in a disruptive world. Forbes magazine tells us that 50% of the jobs are going to be gone in 10 years or less. Now, if you're, we live in a world that is focused on IQ and stuck in our heads, and yet an AI is going to beat you every single time. If all you're focusing on is your, is your IQ, you're going to get trumped and you're going to become obsolete because an AI can do it better. No question. The only thing that makes us human, Michael, is our emotional intelligence. And, and very few of us have a, a large degree of that. In fact, most of us have slim to none. How many, how many people do you, like me, know who are intellectual giants and their emotional children? Yeah. You know, they're, they're just super immature emotionally. Yeah. And so self-awareness and emotional intelligence and adaptability 
is what yeah. we have to develop. You know, Stephen Hawkins said, true intelligence is the ability to adapt to change. Yeah. And so there's, there's job, number one, you asked for three. Number one is self-awareness. Subset of that is emotional intelligence. You know, and, and here's, here's the thing I find. You know, I say to people, how do you feel about this? And they go, well, I think, no, 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 no. Wait a second. I ask you how you feel. Thinking is not feeling. Right. right. And so we got to come back to the center, the heart of the matter. I wrote about that this morning in my mini blog that goes out every day on social media. I said, let's get back to the heart of the matter. And, and that's where emotional intelligence resides. And there are literal neurons, cognitive capacity in the heart. We now know in science. So um, emotional, self-awareness, emotional intelligence, adaptability, intelligence, what we now call AQ, the ability to adapt and adapt and adapt again. It's not fun. You know, we have to reinvent ourselves over and over. And I know, I mean, it feels, it feels really tough to reinvent yourself in your thirties. It feels next to impossible sometimes in your fifties. And believe me, I know. And so this adaptability is something we have to develop. You don't have to like it. I don't like it either but not like it and it's not going to change it. We have to learn to constantly reinvent and adapt. And then job number three is we have to be really, really healthy. And, and this is a big topic too. That's one of the five dimensions, physiology. And of course it includes mental health, emotional health, as well as physical health. But because we live in such a disruptive world, knowledge is doubling every 12 months on our planet. And IBM's recent research said it's going to be doubling every 12 days wow. in short order. There's yeah. no way we can keep up. We just yeah. can't keep up. 43% of the people surveyed are, quote, too exhausted to perform in their daily work. And the re one of the reasons we're exhausted is because we're attempting to keep up. We're not healthy. We have to put a big, big emphasis on diet, exercise, and I know – we got to wrap up here, but let me just say, as an entrepreneur and leader, you have to schedule your workouts just like you schedule a meeting. It needs to be on your calendar and has the same importance. Absolutely, totally agree. And again, I know we only have about a minute left, so um, I really want to thank you, James, for, for being here today. I know you're a very busy person. I know that, that I learned a lot. I don't have time to list out everything right right now as much as I, I'd like to. But if you're listening to this show, be sure to share this with your friends and go to, you can go to jamesray.com to learn more about yes. James Ray and about everything that he's doing today. You can also go to fallingupradio.com and go to James's episode page and you'll see a whole bunch of pictures there and you'll see some other information and some links on how to get a hold of them. You'll, you'll be able to watch the video in case you're watching or listening on, on Apple or Stitcher or iHeart or, or one of the other platforms. But again, James, thank you so much. And I love so many of your analogies, whether it's the woodpecker or whether it's Aladdin's lamp or whether it's the three ideas you gave us at the end. And I love that the idea of your book, The Business of Redemption, coming out in February next year. And I hope that uh, maybe in your promotion next year, next spring, that we can have you back and maybe dive more in depth into some of the areas that we weren't able to touch today. 
I'd love to do that. You know, we've talked about doing this for a while, and it's it's really an honor and a privilege. You're doing great work, Michael, so keep it up. And thank you so much for, for honoring me and allowing me to, to be a part of your show. Absolutely. Thank you again, James. Have a wonderful day. Okay. And, um, I'll talk to you soon. Lots of love. God bless.